You are listening to The Beckett Cook Show with your host, Beckett Cook. For more information about Beckett and his ministry, visit his website at beckettcook.com. To help support the podcast, visit patreon.com slash the Beckett Cook Show. Please consider subscribing to the podcast and leaving a five-star rating. Hey guys, today I have a very special guest, Alan Schliemann. He is an amazing Christian apologist and he works with Stand to Reason. And we've been on this uh, reality student apologetics conference together in four different cities. We have two more to go, Philadelphia and Augusta, Georgia. And today we're going to look at hermeneutics or how biblical interpretation. And we're even going to look at a couple passages uh, that are commonly misunderstood or misinterpreted. And so please welcome Alan Schliemann. Welcome. Well, thanks, Beckett. <laughs> I'm glad to be here and to talk about actually one of my favorite subjects. So yeah, hermeneutics. Now, what is, first of all, what is hermeneutics? Well, that's just a fancy term. I think theologians uh, typically use it, but uh, I don't, I try to avoid the term because I think when people hear hermeneutics, they're like, oh my gosh, this sounds like some sort of dry academic, you know, exercise, which I hope people will see after we talk, it is not at all. But hermeneutics is basically the study of how to interpret the Bible. and Or it, uh, can, it can be how to interpret any text, really. Uh, but, well, yes. But we're, yes. we're specifically talking about the Bible, obviously. Of course, yes. It would be to yeah how, how any text could be interpreted and the principles behind that. Uh, and also, when it comes to Scripture, of course, how does that apply to us as believers, you know, that particular passage? And what is, okay. what is the difference between hermeneutics and exegesis? Well, okay, so now you're getting really technical. <laughs> <laughs> um, so exegesis is about uh, drawing from the text the, the meaning that's there. Um, and, and oftentimes exegesis is uh, contrasted with eisegesis, which is the act of taking what you believe and trying to impose that into the text which we'll talk about in a, later in the episode yeah right which which you don't want to do unless you believe that meaning comes from your own mind and not the author which is a, a hugely important distinction to make here but yeah hopefully yeah that. and so why why is it important for christians to understand Obviously, I mean, this is, I'm kind of answering my own question, but to understand hermeneutics or to understand how to, to properly interpret the word of God. Well, there's several reasons. Uh, first of all, I think we have to realize that every single person who reads the Bible already has a hermeneutic. Everybody already has a system of biblical interpretation. Everybody comes to the text when they read the Bible and they come with certain presuppositions and they're asking certain questions and they're sort of determining what they're going to do with that text. Everybody already has that system. The only question is whether that system helps or hinders your ability to understand what God is saying in the text. So one reason why it's important is that we all have a system. We just want to make sure it's, it's the best system. Okay. Uh, a second reason I would say is simply it's a it's a moral issue, and that is we are, out, I would say, morally obligated to do our due diligence to make sure that we interpret the words of God correctly. Because think about it, Beckett, you probably, and I'm sure everyone listening, has at some point in their life said something 
and then had their words twisted to mean something that you did not intend. Right. I'm right. 70, right. Probably um, all the time. <laughs> yes. Right. Yes. Especially now when you're yeah. making yes, it happens a lot to me. Yes. Well, we're, we're rightly angry about people doing that. Right. Because we're like, wait, that's not what I intended to say. Well, if that's true, think about how much more grievous would it be if we took the very words of God and either intentionally or unintentionally twisted them to mean something that God did not intend. I submit to you that that's a far worse mistake than to do it to man. Of course, to do it to human beings is bad too. But um, so we have a moral obligation to try to do our best to make sure we're not putting words in God's mouth or claiming promises he never made or, you know, whatever. And yeah. the third reason would be, um, I'd say it's just a practical issue. Like, you know, we want to be, as Romans talks about, transformed by the renewing of our mind, right? Um, and we get transformed by the word of God, which is inspired by the Holy Spirit. Well, it's pretty hard to do that if we're misinterpreting the words of scripture, which are intended to transform us, right? So bottom line is, is if we want to obey God, if we want to know what he's asking us to do and how to live, we have to know what he's saying, you know? So um, I, I think that it, it turns out to be also just a very practical matter, you know? Mm-hmm. And, it, and if you think about it, every one of us who professes to be a follower of Jesus, mm-hmm. we're going to be reading the Bible between now and the day we die. And we're going to be basing major life decisions, our theology, what we teach others based on what it says. So how critical is it that we would do our best to make sure we're, we're not misinterpreting what God says? Yeah. And, uh, you know, I, I just... That reminds me of, you know, I, I had community group or small group in my apartment for, I think, 10 years. I hosted uh, and led the community group. And, and even before, when I was in other community groups in different uh, locations in L.A., uh, I just remember <laughs> there was this kind of, you know, we live in such an individualistic, expressive individualistic age that I remember, you know, going when we would discuss a passage in the Bible, it's like almost we would kind of go around the room and everyone would say, well, this is what I feel this passage means. And it's like, no, actually there's only one, there's only one meaning to the passage. Um, And so, and so, and and this goes to the doctrine of perspicuity, which is a difficult word to say, but it just basically means the, the clearness or the, um, the lucidity of scripture. So the doctrine of perspicuity is not meant to be applied to our radically individualistic sense of the one of this idea of one Christian. I mean, you can disagree with me on this, but one Christian plus the Bible plus the Holy spirit equals total understanding. Right. In other words, we have other, we have the body of Christ. We have church history. We have, church fathers, we have all kinds of things that help us understand uh, the understand scripture. Would you agree yes. with that? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. And I don't know if, because um, so I, I went to the same seminary as you, I guess, right? Yeah. You, you, uh, your MA there at um, Talbot. Biola under Talbot. Yeah. Yeah. So I don't know if Ben, if your professor showed you this, um, uh, what was it? It was like a cartoon and it was a, like a Bible study. It kind of similar to the way you just described your Bible study. And, and the, the guy's like, yeah, in Philippians, Paul says that because of his chains, you are to be encouraged. Now, what does that mean to you? And one person's like, 
well, that means, you know, I'm a chain smoker and this is telling me that I'm free to be, you know, <laughs> to, to give up chain smoking. And someone else is like, oh, well, I just got a chain letter the other day. And, you know, this is telling me that I should pass on that chain letter. And someone else is like, well, that reminds me of that Aretha Franklin song, Chain of Fools. And everyone's like, what? You know, and, and the, the Bible study leader's like, wait, those are all interesting insights. But could it just be that Paul's talking about his prison chains? And everyone's like, oh, this Bible study is totally lame. You know, it's like, yeah. you know, I thought this was practical stuff. And, and the point they're making is that, yeah, you're right. Like the, the typical way that people approach sometimes scripture is they read a verse and then they ask the question, well, what does this verse mean to you? Mm-hmm. What does the verse mean to me? As if that's now, I'm not saying that's not an important question. It is. Um, and, and if you want, we could talk about the difference between meaning and application, but it's always critical to first ask, what does the text mean before we ask, how does it apply to us? Because if we get the wrong meaning, we're going to get the wrong application. And to first jump right to the question of meaning to me and think, well, the Holy Spirit's in me. So with that, you know, I'm going to get the proper meaning. It's, it's making a lot of presumptions that aren't accurate. Yeah. And so what are, what are the different philosophies of Bible translations? Yeah, well, so now this isn't um, directly related to, you know, everyday Bible interpretation per se, um, but it's still important. And I think for us to always understand what kind of Bible we're reading, you know, so uh, in, in front of me, I got a um, NASB translation here. Okay. It's and a- NASB like- is, is like a formal equivalency. So it's very, it's very much word for word from the Greek or the Hebrew and including like the voice and the tense. So, and I mean, I have an NASB as well. I, my, my Bible of choice is the ESV mm-hmm. because the NASB is, can be a little kind of um, clumsy because yeah. it, it's, it's so, it, the, it's so, the, the translation is so formal that very it wooded, doesn't yeah. smooth out the rough edge, edges of it. Yeah. Yeah. So what I was going to say was, yeah, so I have an ASB. I mean, I also have NIVs and a whole bunch. I have an ESV as well, but the, the thing to understand is that different Bible translations have different philosophies of what they're doing to the original language, what they're doing to the Greek, the Aramaic, and the, the Hebrew. So as you're just pointing out, NESB is an example of one philosophy, which is called a uh, literal or word-for-word translation, which, as you pointed out, they're trying to, as best they can, ask, well, what's the original Greek word, for example, in the New Testament? And ask, well, what's an equivalent English word? And we'll just stick that word in, our, in the Bible, right? And like you said, it, it, it's nice because there is that precision there. And I, and I think for like a word study you're going to do in, in, in the Bible, it's really helpful there. Mm-hmm. But as you pointed out, I think that, you know, reading large passages of scripture is sometimes awkward because it is so, like you said, kind of stiff or wooden. And I'd also add sometimes the... Um, idioms that are in the original language don't come across, right? right. So an idiom is just a, a phrase where you can't reduce, you can't determine its meaning by simply reducing it to its words. So for example, if I say um, it's, it's raining cats and dogs, right? We all know that, you know, felines and canines aren't falling from the <laughs> sky, right? It's, it's an right. idiom, right? And so if you were to translate and every culture and language has its own idioms, but if you were to translate that phrase literally into, say, French or some other language, people would be like, what are you talking about? You know, it wouldn't make any sense. Okay. So I think that this 
literal word for word translation has that as one of its limitations as well as being wooden. The other common philosophy of translation is called a not word for word, but thought for thought or something dynamic. dynamic equivalent. Yeah. Right. And um, the NIV, by the way, is perhaps is the most popular example of that. Yeah. And so they're asking, okay, well, what's the thought that's being communicated in this verse? Let's try to find an equivalent thought. And so this gives them a little bit more freedom to um, make the passage read more, more smoothly uh, perhaps bring over some of the idioms that are found in the original language. And, and so that's nice. The downside is that if you're reading a dynamic equivalent translation, you have to realize that the translation team is not merely translating the text, but they're also doing some interpretive work as well. Right. Now that's done also in a literal translation as well, but there's more of it going on in a dynamic equivalent. Now, you might say, well, good. I, I'm glad that we have incredible scholars who are doing the work of helping me interpret, not just translate, but interpret. But you, have, you also have to realize they're still human beings. They're still fallible. They're still, you know, predisposed to biases and whatever. I'm not saying they're always wrong or anything like that, but I'm just saying that that's just something you have to realize a, a dynamic equivalent or thought for thought translation is doing that kind of thing. And that's why I like the ESV because it, it lies somewhere between the NIV and the NASB. It kind of is the right. perfect, it's like the perfect, my, my former pastor used to call it the extremely supreme version. <laughs> yeah. Right. Oh yeah. Yeah. We, we always make fun of uh, NIV, like NIV people say, well, that's the non-inspired version. And you know, right, always right. making jokes about the acronyms, but yes. Right. And so wait, how, let's talk about worldviews. How does someone's worldview impact how they interpret? Obviously, I mean, this is a big deal, but how, do, how, does, it, how does that impact how they interpret scripture? So I, I would want to compare and contrast two worldviews. So the first worldview is, is what we call um, a, a Western or existential worldview. And that's the worldview that perhaps you, and I, I know for myself, even though I'm Middle Eastern in, uh, in culture, in a sense, I grew up mostly in the United States. Uh, and so we all have this Western American worldview, which basically sees ourselves in the middle of everything. So whenever it comes to our, our career or our friends or our church or our hobbies or whatever, our, our leading question, maybe not that we're saying out loud, but that's presupposed in our mind. Our leading question is, what does this thing have to do with me? Or how does this thing benefit me? So when we think about what hobbies we're going to do, we probably think about, well, what, what's fun for me? What do I like? What am I good at? You know, when I get a job, I'm thinking, well, what's going to make me the amount of income that I want or what uses my skills the best or how does this serve me? When you pick a church, we're like, oh, well, what church has the worship music I like? What church has the preaching I like and has the people that I like? When you choose your friends, you ask, well, you know, which friends should I pick that make me feel good, that affirm me, that, you know, so everything's centered around us. We are the center of the universe and all of reality is around us. Right. So that's, that's the Western existential worldview, which I would argue we need to learn to jettison <laughs> when we start doing <laughs> Bible reading, okay, as yeah. best we can. And actually, it's a lot harder than you think. Um. Because we're just, we're, we've been swimming in that worldview, assuming you're a Westerner, yeah. for all of our lives, right? 
Now the biblical- and the Bible, by the way, the Bible was written in the ancient Near East, so it's it's it, it's very it's from a very specific context and a very specific culture and place and time. So we have to, you know, we have to consider those those factors. That's right. So the the biblical worldview, um, and uh, I have a diagram of it, but I'll just try to explain it. Um, the biblical worldview starts with God. Okay, so there's a God, and this God has a plan that he's going to use um, Israel, the church, and then the future church to work out that plan. And the purpose of his plan is to establish his kingdom on earth and bless all of the, the world's people through faith. And this will ultimately bring glory back to God. So again, the, this biblical worldview, which is a more historical worldview, starts with God and ends with God and uses the church, I'm sorry, the Israel, the church, and then whatever the future church or restored Israel looks like to ultimately um, establish God's kingdom and bring glory back to God. And so notice in that worldview, you and I are not really in there per se. I mean, we can, we can be involved in it and what God's doing, but the worldview is about God. And that's the biblical worldview that the authors had. And so the reason why I bring this up is when we read scripture, we have to understand that the worldview of the biblical authors is the biblical worldview, not this Western existential worldview that's all about us. Right. And if we don't try to adopt that way of thinking when we read scripture, we're far more tempted to, like you said in your Bible study, to ask the question when you read a verse, what does this verse mean for me? What does this verse have to do with me? You know, um, if you read Second Chronicles seven fourteen, where it said, you know, people love to quote, you know, if if, uh, if my people who are called by my name uh, humble themselves, you know, seek my face and turn from their wicked ways, you know, I will, I will hear them, heal, their heal, heal them from heaven, heal their land, and something else, right? And people read that, you know, maybe it's a it's on a calendar or on a plaque in your room. And you just simply answer, think of, oh, uh, if my people, that's, that's me, I'm God's people. If I pray, God will heal my land, America. So, man, we need to, as a church today, to come together and pray and ask God to, you know, heal our land. And now I'm not saying all that stuff is a bad idea. But what I am saying is that having a um, American or Western existential worldview tempts us to look at that verse and immediately jump to the question, what does this verse have to do with us? And how does this, how is God promising us certain things? When in reality, if you had a biblical worldview and you read the verse in context, which we'll get to, but um, you would come to realize this is God answering a specific request from Solomon, which was in the previous chapter where Solomon outlines a whole bunch of things in his prayer. And God answers directly, almost word for word to what Solomon's requesting. So this is about, you know, uh, uh, an answer to prayer um, from God to Solomon as they have just built the temple and are consecrating it. And then God's kind of giving them this thing about, you know, blessings and curses and whatever, you know. So, again, it's like, but, but when we have this sort of worldview that everything's about us, we tend to see every Bible verse as immediately about us. And, again, I don't want to say that oh, we should never ask the question, how does this verse apply to me? Of course we should. But there's a critical first step we need to take before we ever get to that 
Yeah, it just reminds me of D.A. Carson when he says a text taken out of context is a pretext for a proof text. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so it, there's That's always right. this danger of, you know, just isolating. That's why it's kind of like even having like a, you know, a verse on a coffee mug. It's like, yeah, but you need to like read that in context and the context and of the of not only the the passage, but also the, the chapter and also the, the book. And also, you know, it, it just keeps getting bigger and bigger, the circle, the That's concentric right. circles, and you have to read it in that context. Otherwise, you can be completely just off when it comes to that verse. You can, you can misinterpret that verse. Right, right. In fact, it's funny you say that about a coffee verse, or a, a coffee mug with a verse on it. I wrote an article on our website, str.org, called Coffee Cup Christianity. And it's precisely about that. It's about how we take verses, slap them on a coffee mug. And then we think that that verse kind of has a meaning all on its own, you know, isolated from the rest of the context and how dangerous that can be. In mm-hmm. fact, uh, uh, so, you know, you've been a part of our reality conference. We had a previous conference, I think it was last year or the year before, I can't remember, but where I came out and I was role-playing um, King David. And I was like, you know, making jokes, you know, about being King David, whatever. And you know how after he sins with Bathsheba, Nathan comes to, um, to hold him accountable to his sin and call him out. Right. Yeah. And so Nathan Who's tells him, st- what's that? Who's the man? I'm the man. Yeah. Yes, that's right. So the very end when, you know, Nathan tells a story about this guy who steals, you know, this, um, this, uh, I think it was a sheep or whatever. Um, you know, Nathan, uh, David's listening and Nathan says, David, you are that man. And uh, of course, what Nathan is saying is you're the guilty one, right? You're the one in that story who's done this horrible thing. So I pretended to be King David and say, wait a minute, I'm the man, you know, like, oh, I'm the man. That's right. I'm the man, you know, and then I had a, I had a coffee mug that says, David, you are the man. Like it's a, like it's a that's, compliment, you know, that's hilarious. So it was really you're the man. But, yeah. You're the man. So anyway, that kind of goes to, and so, point, uh, yeah. and we talked to you, you mentioned application. So what, what's the difference between the meaning of a passage and the application of a passage. Yeah, well, you and you touched on this just a, a little while ago when we first were talking. Uh, this is so critical to understand this, this distinction. The, the meaning of, of any passage is what the author intended to communicate. Okay, so, so the meaning is what the author intended to communicate and can be discovered by trying to figure out well, what was the author trying to say, or how did the uh, how did the original audience understand him? And it's it's important to mention, as you actually already mentioned, that there's typically only one meaning to any biblical passage. Okay, and uh, it doesn't. So, in other words, it doesn't matter what you think it means or what someone else thinks it means. What matters is what does it actually mean, and that that means that there's only one proper interpretation, and there could be many incorrect interpretations. Right. Um, and I'd also add that the meaning doesn't change over time. Right. So um, the Holy Spirit's not going to give you a new meaning to a Bible verse that it, that it didn't mean when, say, the Apostle Paul wrote that particular passage, you know. Right. So the, so the meaning doesn't change. Uh, and we're not given new meanings over time uh, just because, you know, the Holy Spirit's in us or whatever like that. So that's meaning. So what, what did the author intend to communicate? Um, the application is figuring out how that meaning is relevant to your life. 
Right. Right. And although there might be only one meaning, there can be many applications. So like take uh, like Matthew 5.44, Matthew 5.44, I think Jesus says, love your enemies. So we read a verse like that. And our first question should be, well, what does that mean? Well, now, of course, that's an easy passage, right? <laughs> it means, you know, Jesus is saying, hey, look, those people who are, you know, mistreating you, who treat you with malice, who are your enemies, like, don't respond in kind with evil. You should love them, okay? Like, we get that, right? So it only has one meaning. But now, how that verse applies to me or to you is going to be perhaps different because my enemies are not your enemies, Right. Right. You know, maybe, you know, maybe your enemies are maybe you have some family member who lied about you or something or backstabbed you. Maybe my one of my enemies is people who try to, uh, I don't know, like thwart my public speaking events. Right. Because they're upset with me or whatever. Um, you probably had that, too, actually. <laughs> yeah. But uh, <laughs> but the point is, is that me, there's only typically one correct meaning to any passage, but there can be multiple applications. You know, right. Right. That's helpful. And um, I remember, you know, when I first 12 years ago, when I God opened my eyes and uh, put his spirit in me, I remember just like how amazing it was when I would just read the Bible. Every word would just I talk about this in my book, but every word would just jump off the page at me. And and I would be like, oh, my gosh, that that's true. Like from from the Old Testament to the New Testament. So the Holy Spirit illumines it, my understand our understanding of of the Word of God, and I, so what what is the Holy Spirit's role? Bes- I mean, besides that, is there another role for the Holy Spirit in terms of Bible reading? Yeah, and and I would say that what we, we what we have to understand is the Bible. I'm sorry, the Holy Spirit is not involved in um, giving us a meaning, right? Um, to the verse, because if you think about it, even someone who's not a believer, like an atheist, they could be an expert in Greek. They could have read the New Testament more times than us. They could be a scholar in hermeneutics and understand the passage just as well, if not better than us, theoretically. Right. So it's, so it's not that the Holy Spirit living in us somehow gives us a meaning. Um, and I would also add, it doesn't he doesn't give us infallible interpretations. And I think we know that to be the case because yeah. we oftentimes will disagree <clears throat> with interpretations. And as I mentioned before, um, just in the last kind of part where we we're talking, the Holy Spirit's not going to give you a meaning that is different than what the author intended to communicate when they wrote that passage. Because after all, it was the Holy Spirit who inspired that author in the first place, right? To write what they wrote. Right. So, that's, so those are three things the Holy Spirit does not do. What he does do, and you kind of used the word there in a, mi- a minute ago, the Holy Spirit is involved in illumination, okay, not interpretation. And so illumination means, uh, well, like the word sounds, it means to illuminate. To, it's, it's to reveal what's already there. So just to illustrate, like if you walked into a, a room and all the lights were off, you wouldn't be able to see anything. When you turn on the lights you now can see the furniture and, you know, other, other things that are in the room. Notice the light did not create those items. It just revealed what already was there. And in the same way, the Holy spirit doesn't, you know, create new meaning or tell you what that meaning is. Rather he, he illuminates the meaning that's already there. And I think there's two ways in which he does that. Number one is the Holy spirit 
helps us to welcome biblical truths rather than reject them as foolish, right? Mm-hmm. So this is kind of going to 1 Corinthians 2.14, right, where um, we see Paul talking about this. Um, because there's a lot of things in Scripture that are countercultural, you know, uh, love your enemies and pray for those who persecute you kind of things, like that we would perhaps reject if we didn't have the Holy Spirit in us. Mm-hmm. But because we have the Holy Spirit, he helps us to welcome these biblical truths rather than reject them as foolish. And I think the second thing that the Holy Spirit does, or at least the second thing, is that he helps us to find applications to the truths that are found in Scripture. And so, you know, we read, we read a passage in our devotional time and we pray, God, you know, help me to see how this is relevant for me. And then you'll be convicted like, oh, man, like my aunt may, like, I've been so, you know, harsh, harsh to her, you know, and I'm told to, to love my brothers and sisters or whatever, you know, so the Holy Spirit can help you to find applications to the biblical truths that are found in scripture. Yeah. And so um, I want to go now to kind of your, you talk about three key points for everyday Bible reading. Can you sort of lay those out and, and um, help us to understand like context, history, and genre? Yeah, so those are um, those are three key interpretive principles that I think are so important that whenever you read a Bible passage, you should kind of have them in mind. In fact, I'd re- recommend you memorize them, context, history, genre. And each of these principles has a related question associated with it that I would encourage you to always ask whenever you're doing your devotional time or Bible study, right? So the first, the first one is context. And the question to ask is, what is the author talking about in the surrounding text? Um, The second one is history. So the question to ask there is, uh, what's the historical occasion for why the author wrote? Mm -hmm. And the third thing is genre. And the question to ask there is, what's the literary style that the the author is using in, in the text he's written? You know, and what are the, the what are the different literary styles? Just to remind us. So, uh, so a literary style is just. Um, you, mean, you mean what are the examples of them? Yeah, like narrative. Oh yeah, yeah. So there's like narrative. There's poetry. There's um, law. Wisdom. There's parable. There's wisdom literature. There's apocalyptic literature. There's gospel. Um, you know, so there's a whole bunch of different literary styles. Just like there's different styles of music, right? Yeah. You have like rock. You got '80s. You got you know hip hop. You know. In the same way, there's different literary genres, you know, and so um, and, you know, we could certainly unpack context, history and genre if you want. Yeah, let's let's look at context. So give us let's give us an example or a couple examples of how the context uh, informs what the the passage or the verse means. Yeah. So, um, well, well, it's important to understand the context, remember, is the path is what's before and after a Bible passage that you're looking at. And um, it determines the meaning of that smaller unit of text. Right. So I would argue this is so important that you can't really know the meaning of a word or a verse or a passage unless you know the context. Right. And let me just give you a, a quick illustration. If I said the word buck to you, okay. And I ask you, well, what does the word buck mean? Well, it could mean dollar. It could mean deer. It could refer to your uncle, right? It could be the verb to buck. You have, you have no idea because you don't have any context, right? Midnight cowboy, Joe Buck. 
That's right. That's right. <laughs> Don't watch that movie. Anyway, there's, a whole, yeah. there's a whole bunch of options, right? So, but let me add some context. What if I said, I got a buck? Well, now you know it's not the name of your uncle and it's not the verb to buck, but you still don't know whether I'm talking about a dollar or a deer. So let me add more context. While I was out hunting, I got a buck and I brought it home in my truck. Well, now you know the word buck is referring to a deer because the context helped determine the smaller unit of text. But now look at this. What if I change the context? What if I said, hey, um, I got a dollar. Uh, I'm sorry. Hey, I got a, uh, I have a dollar, I have a buck, uh, and I can buy that candy bar for you. Right. So now, you know, because I'm talking about purchasing a candy bar for you, that the word buck means dollar. So notice the words, I got a buck are exactly the same words in both situations. Mm -hmm. Yet the word buck has a completely different meaning. How did we determine which meaning it is? The context. So the context literally changes the meaning or drives the meaning. It, it excludes some meanings and it, it, it forces another meaning. That's how powerful context is, right? Um, and so this is why you all, you know, in fact, when, when, I teach on con- when I teach on this material, I don't call it hermeneutics. I call it never read a Bible verse. That's the title of my talk. <laughs> and it's never read a Bible that. verse, not because we're saying don't read the Bible. We're saying never try to figure out the meaning of a Bible passage apart from its context. Never read just a verse. Yeah. Always read a paragraph, a pericope, the whole chapter or the whole book if you can, right? The more you read, the better you'll understand the flow of thought and it'll help determine the smaller unit of text. And that's and so can, critical. can you give us an example of a verse that is yeah. commonly like a coffee mug verse that's commonly thought? Well, I mean, you already did one, but uh, another the, example. The yeah. one like I can do all things through God uh, who strengthens me. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Yeah. You know, uh, so and people are like, oh, well, you know, they're stuck in some horrible situation. Like, well, I can do all things through God, you know, with God who strengthens me. And, and of course, Paul there isn't talking about doing anything. Like, I can fly. I can escape this bank robbery situation I'm in. I, no, I mean, if you read the context, Paul's talking about, you know, how he's in need and he's in plenty. And sometimes he's, in, you know, financial, uh, in financial need. And sometimes he's got stuff. And so the context is, is limited to what Paul's talking about. But I, I want to, I don't know if we have, do we have time for like, like a three minute yeah. example there? Yeah, yeah, yeah. So um, this happened a few years ago when my, uh, we were attending a church and my daughter was in a, um, like a Sunday school class in the morning and they sent her home or they, they, they gave her a lesson and they sent her home with a worksheet. And I, I looked at the worksheet because I was like, Hey honey, what did, uh, what did, what did you learn in Sunday school today? And it was, a, it was based on uh, Luke 11, uh, I think it's five through eight. And um, so the, the title of the lesson is The Night Neighbor, okay? And it's a story where um, uh, it talk, Jesus is telling a parable where he says, you know, suppose some guy goes to his neighbor at midnight and says, hey, I got some friends coming over. Bring me some loaves of, you know, cast some food. And the guy's like, dude, it's midnight. Like, what are you talking about? I, I, I'm in bed. My kids are, you know, in bed. The door's shut. Like, leave me alone. Well, the guy keeps, you know, bugging him, like, come on, you know, give me some food, whatever. And finally, the guy says, all right, fine, here, take the food. Okay. Now, the Bible lesson that the Sunday school had created, by the way, this is a very large 
uh, publication. Like it's not, it's, this is used in churches all over the country. The, the, uh, the, the lesson only quoted Luke 11, five through eight, which is that small section of the parable. Yeah. And at the bottom, it said application points. And here was the main application point that the Sunday school lesson was giving my daughter. And it was sharing. It says, you should share before you're even asked. In other words, what they're saying is, you know, that guy who kept being asked to give food, you know, don't be like him. You should just give, you should share first. Okay. Before you're even asked when you see a need. Now notice what's going on here. Cause this is kind of combining a whole bunch of things here. Number one worldview, right? Thus mm-hmm. the people who created the Sunday school lesson have an American Western worldview. And what do we value in our culture? Sharing. I'm not saying that's bad, but we, we see a story like that and our mind jumps to sharing because we're kind of conditioned to teach kids that sharing is important and we should share after all. Right. Um, and, and, I'll admit that if you just read that passage verses five through eight, well, yeah, that's, that would be the, the appropriate application. If that's all you had, not the pro- it would be what you would mistakenly think is the correct uh, application. Right. Right. You think that's the meaning, but what they didn't do is they didn't read the verse in context, which goes back to another point we've already talked about what we're talking about here. Right. And so when you read it in context, you see, um, Jesus is actually teaching the apostle, the disciples, how to pray. Okay. So he tells them, you know, shares in the Lord's prayer. And then he, um, he explains this parable and then he, ex- I'm sorry, then he tells the parable and then he explains the parable afterwards, right? With the whole thing about, look, ask it to be given to you, search and you'll find, knock and the door shall be opened. Okay. So Jesus is talking about the importance of being persistent in your prayer and how God is, is, is unlike that neighbor who is willing to give to his children, whom he loves, what they ask for. Okay? So that's the point of the passage. But, of course, they missed that because they just read the parable and ignored the context. <laughs> but, Beckett, it's, it's – okay, sorry. I, I want to say there's something worse than that. But did you want to comment before I – Keep no, so off. no, keep going because. But I'm going to ask you about what what the did you did your daughter go back to the teacher and say uh, we need to re reconfigure this? No, she's too young. She's like younger than ten at the time. So <laughs> I, I, my wife and actually went and told them this, and they're like, "Oh, okay, we'll we'll ask one of our pastors." So they did, and the pastors agreed that this was not the proper application. It wasn't about sharing. Because they just, the, the, you know, and again, they're just using a curriculum that they purchased for the church. But, but Beckett, here's, here's what's a killer about this whole thing. With this mistaken lesson, they are asking you to identify yourself with which person in, this, in the story. The person who is already asleep and has plenty, right? But when you read it in context and understand the point that Jesus is making, He's actually asking you to identify with the person who goes and does the asking. So it, it because we're supposed to be like the person asking the neighbor, yeah. we're supposed to be going to our father, asking for our father for things, right? Yeah. So the, so the application and the lesson they give, first of all, the lesson's incorrect. Uh, it's not about sharing. It's about the persistence of prayer and, and God's willingness to want to give to his kids. But second of all, it asks us to identify with the wrong person in the story. 
And so this is why I say we're, we're literally putting words in God's mouth, twisting them to mean something that he didn't mean. And we're missing the message that Jesus has for us there, the lesson that we were supposed to learn. Not to mention modeling bad reading habits to young kids, you know. So anyway. have they changed the that? Have they changed that in the? Yeah. The okay. Good. Well, I don't know about the curriculum itself because I didn't go to the publisher. I just went to this church and just said, "Hey, look, since this is my home church, you know, please let's <laughs> let's not teach this in future years." Right? Let's not. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so, yeah. And so let's talk. Let's talk about history for a second. Um, what? are some what's an example of uh you know looking at the history of of the of the text well okay so obviously there's a time probably my favorite one is um revelation three um revelation three it's a letter to laodicea yeah and um so the, it's the verse that is often quoted is verses 15 through 16. And the verse says, um, the two verses say, I know your deeds that you're neither cold nor hot. I wish that you were cold or hot. Uh, so because you were lukewarm, neither cold nor hot, I'm about to spit you out of my mouth. Right. And, and oftentimes um, that's read again. American Western worldview, we think, oh, hot and cold. What does that mean? Well, that usually means like if you're hot, it means you're passionate about something. If you're cold, it kind of means like you're, you know, indifferent. Aloof and yeah, yeah. Yeah, right, right. And so the Bible here is saying, look, don't be on the fence with your faith. Either be passionate for Christ or, you know, don't even claim to be a follower of Christ, right, kind of thing. Like that's the way they interpret it. And so we have worldview mistake number one going on there number two we're reading it out of context number three we're not considering the history behind why that was said okay so just a little bit of extra context here so just two verses uh, after that passage Mm -hmm. um well first of all the verses before indicate that this is jesus speaking to the church in laodicea okay and then verse 17 which is the verse right after the passage i quoted out of context uh, Jesus continues and says, because you say I am rich and have become wealthy and have not need of anything, you do not realize that you're wretched, miserable, poor, blind, and naked. I advise you to buy from me gold refined in the fire so that you be, so that you can become rich and have white garments to wear so that you may clothe yourself and, and that the shame of your nakedness will not be revealed. And I salve to anoint your eyes so that you might see. So there's a whole bunch of metaphors going on there, uh, like spiritual metaphors to kind of show the kind of the bankruptcy of the Laodicean faith for whatever, mm-hmm. for whatever reason. And so we say, okay, well, let's, let's look at some of the history behind Laodicea. Like, what do we know about Laodicea? And so if you just get a concordance or not a concordance, a, a, a commentary, or in fact, I even looked this up on Wikipedia and Wikipedia had this history, believe it or not. I'm not endorsing Wikipedia, but I'm just saying even Wikipedia had this. But here's what we know about Laodicea. Laodicea was a very wealthy city. It had um, its own banking center. It was located on an Asian trade route. So it was just like a a good center for all that. In fact, they had so much money that when there was an earthquake and there was damage to the city, they actually refused the Senate's money. Um, we also know that Laodicea had these black um, 
a sheep that produced this beautiful black wool, this glossy black wool. We know also that there was a, um, like a, a medical center there that produced a very well-known eye medicine to treat eye conditions. And so despite all of these great aspects about Laodicea, it turns out that Laodicea had a horrible water supply. And so what they had to do was they used aqueducts to pipe in hot water from a neighboring city, Hierapolis, which is about six miles away. And then they would pipe in cold water through these other aqueducts from Colossae, which is about 10 miles away. Mm-hmm. And so by the time that hot and cold water came through those aqueducts and reached the city of Laodicea, it was neither hot nor cold. It was, guess what? Lukewarm. Lukewarm, right? <laughs> and so with that knowledge, and, and so well, and just to add some more here, hot water is useful for, you know, bathing or cleaning, cleaning, you know, cold water is useful for drinking when it's hot out or whatever, you know, so both hot and cold water have a particular usefulness, but lukewarm water is kind of like not as useful, right? So now that we have that um, historical understanding about Laodicea, it's the city, its inhabitants, and sort of like why it was such a beautiful place and everybody wanted to live there. If you reread the passage, then with that understanding, I think the passage makes a lot more sense, right? So Jesus begins, says, I know your deeds, that you're neither hot nor cold. I wish that you were either hot or cold, but because you were lukewarm, either hot or cold, I'm about to spit you out of my mouth. So right there at the beginning, Jesus begins by signaling to the Laodiceans that, yeah, you're, you're like your, your, your water supply, lukewarm. You, you don't have the hot and cold water that you try to pipe in from these cities, your water's lukewarm and you're lukewarm as well. And so they immediately would have recognized what is being said there because he's referencing an actual historical piece of geography that's relevant to, to them. Uh, but then the verse continues. It says, you say I'm rich. I've become wealthy and do not need a thing, but you don't re- realize that you're wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, and naked. So, Then remember, we talked about how when there was an earthquake and there was damage to the city, Laodicea refused the monies from the Senate to Mm -hmm. rebuild the city because they already had what they needed. And so the the verse there kind of makes reference to that, how it says, you know, um, you say you don't need a thing. You know, you're all so self-sufficient, right? Right. And then he continues, he says, um, I advise you to be, I advise you to buy from me gold refined in the fire so that you can become rich and have white clothes to wear so you can close yourself and you can cover your shameful nakedness and have eye salve to put on your eyes so that you can see. So he makes reference also to their, their glossy black wool that they had, that they thought made them so special and useful. And the fact that they had this eye medicine that they thought was so beneficial to everybody, which in a physical sense it was, right. But he's using these spiritual metaphors to say, man, you guys have all these things that you think make you useful, but for the kingdom, you're not being useful, right? I know your deeds is what Jesus is saying. And they're not, they're not useful. They're like your water supply, lukewarm. And so, again, when you, when you read that passage in light of the, the historical knowledge that we have, having done just a little bit of study about it, it totally changes your understanding of what's being said. You know, mm-hmm. being hot and cold isn't about being passionate for Christ or being kind of, um, you know, on the fence for him, right? It's about being useful or not being useful, you know? And so anyway, so I just think it's an interesting example of how um, 
a little bit of uh, in historical investigation helps to, to enlighten that. Yeah, and then it, he tells them to repent <laughs> in this, that's in this right. passage. Yeah. Um, yeah. Let me just add one more quick thing. I'm not suggesting that you have to do some deep historical dive every time you read any passage of scripture, okay? Um, in, th- in this case, you kind of maybe have to do a little bit more than normal. Sometimes just reading the Bible, like other Old Testament passages, is enough of a history to better understand a more current passage, you know? When yeah. Jesus says, I am, okay, well, you might say, well, what does he mean by that? Well, if you know the history behind that, when Moses asked God, who is he? God said, I am who I am, right? Now you see, oh, Jesus is making reference to that old comment that he's God, claiming to be God. Yeah, right, he's, that, to be God. he's saying, exactly. I am. Yeah, that's right. So not everything requires some like incredible historical study, but um, sometimes it does. And sometimes it, it helps to illuminate, uh, illuminate the text, better understand the text. And then finally, like, I mean, uh, quickly give us a, a, an example of genre of how a literary style, the liter- literary style an author is using uh, can, can help us understand a passage more, uh, you know, correctly, basically. Yeah. When my, uh, when my wife and I first got married, we sought the, the mentorship of an older couple that had been married many years um, before us. And uh, I remember I was, we were talking to them and we were out to dinner with them, having like a get to know you um, first night together, if you will. And we found out that they had a couple of kids. One, one of their daughters was in college. And I asked the question, Hey, is she a, a believer? And the mom said to me or to us, she said, no, she's not. She says, I, I, I raised my kids as Christians, but um, my daughter is no longer walking with the Lord. And I said to her, oh, sorry to hear that. I, you know, uh, it must be hard. And she said, oh, no, 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 it's okay. I said, well, why is that? She goes, it's no problem. I'm not worried at all about it because God's promised me that if I train up a child in the way they should go, when they get older, they'll not turn from it. And, and, and since God has promised that, I've done my part. I, I fulfilled my end of the bargain by raising my daughter in the way she should go. And now it's up to God to fulfill his end of the bargain. And he's promised me that he'll bring her back to faith. Now, the question was, well, what verse is she quoting? It's Proverbs uh, 26. Right. And, and is she interpreting that passage correctly? Now, Proverbs is a book in the Bible which has a particular, is a particular type of genre, a particular literary style. And every genre in the Bible has different interpretive principles, which, believe it or not, means that every genre needs to be read and interpreted differently. Mm-hmm. Now, that might sound harder than it actually is. I actually think everybody knows this intuitively, and I can give you proof yeah. of that later if you want. But um, what, are the, what are the interpretive principles for Proverbs? Well, the first one that you learn when you go to seminary, for example, or uh, if you study this question, is that Proverbs are not promises. promises. They're principles. They're principles, right. They're, they're, they're pithy aphorisms. That are, intended, that are intended to explain how life generally goes. Mm-hmm. They, they, um, they yield probable outcome, not guaranteed outcomes. Okay. Yeah. And so, and we have this, by the way, in English, right? We have our modern proverbs, right? We say um, an apple a day keeps a doctor away. Okay. Is it true that if you eat fruits and vegetables that generally you'll be a healthy person? Sure. 
Is it a guarantee that if you eat an apple every day, you'll never have to see a doctor? Well, no, of course not. Does that invalidate that proverb? No, not at all. Because the point of the proverb is to give a general principle, a, a, a way of the way life generally goes. And actually, there's a lot of biblical proverbs that are, well, all biblical proverbs are this way. Like um, uh, Proverbs 16, 7. When a man's ways are pleasing to the Lord, he makes even his enemies to be at peace with him. Well, were the Apostle Paul's ways pleasing to the Lord? Yeah. <laughs> were his enemies at peace with him? N- no, they beheaded him, right? I mean, that's hardly peaceful, right? Right. Is that inval- Does that mean God didn't fulfill his promise? No, because that's just a proverb. It's, it's, a, it's an explanation of how life generally goes. And so when we come to that verse, Proverbs 22, 6, that, that friend of mine was quoting, hey, train up a child the way they should go, and when they get older, they will not turn from it. This is not meant to be a promise from God. It's meant to be a, a pithy aphorism to explain how life generally goes. And it's not a guarantee that God's going to bring back your wayward child from their, you know, from their rebellion and help them to, you know, come back to the faith of their youth. Yeah. And the problem with what has happened is if you don't attend to genre, you put words in God's mouth. You make him promise things. He's not promising. And so now for that woman, if this girl, if this daughter never comes back to her faith, what's the mother going to think? Well, God wasn't faithful. You know, uh, mm-hmm. he, he can't be trusted. You know, what is this with my, with Christianity? Like, I mean, she can have a crisis of faith just based on yeah. this, you know, misunderstanding. And I get, I get, you know, I get so many, you know, emails and, you know, I don't blame mothers or when I get these emails, but they often say, you know, I raised my child in a Christian home. We raised them in the, up in the Lord. Um, and we, you know, we don't know what happened. And this is a, a perfect ex- example. And it does, I think, cause a crisis of faith in a lot of people when they don't really understand that, you know, there's different genres and different genres have, you know, different meanings and or, or different interpretations. And so it's, it's, it's so crucial to have that, especially for Proverbs, to know that they're principles, they're not promises, they're not guarantees, you know, that right. just because you raise your child up in the Lord, that they're going to be, you know, a faithful Christian. So that's important. Um, now, I want to end on this, if we have time. Uh, yeah, I want to end on the, the uh, you talk about, I think, it's, I think I know what you're talking about in the t- nativity story. <laughs> Talk about, because I think we did this in, in my class, in Benjamin Shen's class. Uh, talk about uh, the nativity story and how there it's commonly misinterpreted. Okay. So just disclaimer, if, if anyone writes you and complains <laughs> that uh, we've spoiled Christmas for them, I know. Me. Their, their nativity scenes are going to have to be thrown in the, in the I trash. Know, I know. No, it's not, it's not bad. It's not like some like you know, scandalous thing. It's just, it's a combination of some mistakes that have gone on in tradition that have led to this. But what's the traditional nativity story, right? Uh, Joseph and Mary are headed to Bethlehem because there's a census, right? And they're supposed to go back to Bethlehem from where uh, Joseph is from. And the picture you have in your mind is Mary is like visibly pregnant. Like we're talking massive baby bump, right? She's on a donkey. She's like, you know, bumping along while she's pregnant. And as they approach Bethlehem, she goes into labor and he's like, Oh great. Now what, you know? So they run to the Hilton, 
it's booked. They run to the Marriott, the Ritz, Carlton, like all the hotels are sold out in Bethlehem, right? And because there's some convention going on or whatever. And yeah. so they're like, okay, so they dart for the nearest cave or dart for the nearest like barn, you know, and, you know, Jesus, you know, Mary gives birth to Jesus, like under the stars, you know, in, uh, you know, in a cave or who knows, something like that. And they throw her, throw Jesus in this like wooden sort of like feeding trough, right? And he's mm-hmm. placed in there and boom, there it is. And they have this like serene, beautiful, romantic kind of like night <laughs> alone and it's, you know, there's their little baby and under the stars and blah, 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 you know? Yeah. All right. Yeah. Very cute. And it makes for, for great marketing. Okay. But there's, there's actually four lines of evidence that lead us to think that this is not the full picture or the correct picture. Okay. Right. And these all relate to, to hermeneutics or the study of biblical interpretation, but I'll admit that uh, some of these require more than just basic everyday um, studies. Okay. So most of what I've been talking to you Beckett and to your audience about are things that I believe everybody for the most part intuitively knows like context or history or genre. Okay. Yeah. Uh, but they just don't apply it when it comes to the Bible, the following things might be a little bit more complicated, but I just still think it's rather interesting when you look at it. So first argument is a cultural argument. Okay. And this touches on worldview. Okay. Um, in 21st century America, yeah, if you're going to go out of town to visit your family, it's quite likely that you would stay at a hotel or some sort of, you know, an inn or whatever. And, uh, but that's, that's not first century Palestine. That's, that's a very Western American way of thinking about traveling to visit family or traveling to visit friends. Okay. Uh, like, uh, I guess, like I said, I'm Middle Eastern. When I go, I'm going to Chicago next month. When I visit my family in Chicago, I, everyone's arguing as to where I'm going to stay. It's going to be at someone's house. There's no way I'm staying in a hotel. Right. Yeah. Uh, Second of all, Western, uh, Western American thinking might keep animals in a barn. That's like far away from your house. Right. But that's because we're, we're fairly wealthy, right? First century Palestine doesn't have that kind of luxuries, right? They often will keep their animals in or around, around the house or in the house. Okay. Yeah. Uh, also, 21st century America, um, yeah, birth is a very private affair. We typically don't have lots of people around when we're giving birth. I know I didn't when my wife gave birth, right? Um, but that's not necessarily the case in 21st century. I'm sorry, first century Palestine. Okay. So that's cultural argument. Just thinking, uh, let's rethink some of these things. Number two, historical argument. What do we know about the history of Bethlehem? Well, it was not a major city. And mm-hmm. most likely, almost definitely, there was no hotels and no inns anywhere. Like, this is not a city on a major road. Like, people don't come by and stay in hotels and stuff like that. Okay. So that poses another problem for this traditional narrative about staying in a hotel or, or not, or trying to stay in a hotel. The third is a, is a literary or lexical argument. And this is where it gets a little bit more technical. But in Luke 2 7, we see this verse. It says, and she gave birth to her firstborn, a son. She wrapped him in clothes and placed him in a manger because there was no room for them in the inn. Now, this is where we, a lot of people think, oh, okay, there was no room for them in the inn. There's no room for them in the hotel, so they must have stayed somewhere outside in a manger where farm animals are kept, okay? Right. Now, I think, I'm not sure about this, but I think that the NIV, specifically the 1984 
version of the NIV is the most popular English Bible in the world, I think. Right. Still. Yeah, I think it is. Yeah. And it translates the word there as in. In fact, most translations do. Even the NASB, even the ESV, by the way, <laughs> translates this word in. Now, the Greek word that's translated as in is kataluma, which does not mean in or hotel. In fact, Luke has a perfectly good word for hotel. And uh, it's the word, forgive me, I'm not a Greek guy, but it's pendochian, I think is the, is the way we pronounce it. And it's found in the, in the parable of the Good Samaritan, where, you know, the Good Samaritan finds this guy left for dead on the side of the road. Right. He takes him to a, a pendochian, a hotel, an inn, says to the innkeeper, hey, take care of this guy. I'll pay you for it when I come back, so on and so forth. So if Luke really wanted to use the word hotel or inn, he had a perfectly good word for it that he used, you know, elsewhere in his gospel, but he didn't use the word pendochian. He used the word cataluma, which means upper room or guest room. Right. And by the way, I think, what's that? I said, yeah, I said, right. Yeah. Yeah. I think only the CSB, the Christian standard Bible, and actually the newest version of the NIV translates it as guest room. And what am I referring to when I say guest room? Well, this comes to our fourth argument, and that's the archaeological argument. Um, And this argument says that archaeologically, what we know about first century Palestinian homes was that they had oftentimes a ground floor. Like this? But then there was also a section where during the winter, you could bring animals in, your, your farm animals, into your ground floor. And there was built into the ground these feeding troughs, these mangers. And your upstairs, there was an upper room, a cataluma, which was often used for guests. Okay. Well, think about it. Joseph and Mary are heading to Bethlehem. Why? Because there's a census and everyone who's supposed to be back in town is there. So what Luke is saying was there was no room in the cataluma. There was no room in the upper room because there was already a ton of guests. So instead, Mary and Joseph placed Jesus downstairs in the manger inside of the ground floor room where there was other animals. Right. In other words, Jesus was probably born in a house with lots of people around and placed in the ground room. I'm sorry, ground floor room feeding trough inside the house where the animals were. Yeah. And if I can show this, I mean, this is so the, uh, the this a area is the living area yeah. this is a and then the this these are feeding troughs for the and the b is the feeding troughs for animals oh yes okay and then this is where the animals would live and right. it was like four feet below the the main floor or the ground floor and so right. they would they would eat out of these feeding troughs is is that is that what you're uh, well, the picture I have is very more is elaborate like it's a, <laughs> like a 3d it's, it looks like a picture almost and it has cutouts to show that, but it's fine. You know, send me the picture and then we'll put it in in post. Okay. Yeah. Yeah. So, um, and and by the way, uh, in Matthew two 11, it says that the Magi, when they came, it says they entered a house. So all, all the evidence I think points to the idea that, yeah, Jesus was born in a house with lots of people around and the, it was not that there was no room in any hotels. There weren't any hotels. There was no room in the upper room because everybody was there for the census 
the house is probably packed. And so that's why Jesus is placed on the ground floor in a feeding trough. I love that. Yeah, that, that's one of the things we, we learned. Shoot the messenger. I know. That's one of the first things we learned in the hermeneutics class with Benjamin Shin. Oh, cool. uh, so yeah, it was kind of funny. But um, well, we're going to have to have you back because you you speak a lot on Islam because yes. that's your heritage, right? Mm-hmm. So you speak on Islam, you speak on abortion, you uh, speak on homosexuality, which I would love to talk to you about some some stuff with that and. Uh, and also you speak on tactics on how questions to engage non-believers. So whenever you want to come back, <laughs> I would love to address any and all of these subjects with you sure. if you're willing. Yeah. Oh yeah. I'm willing. Of course. Okay, great. You heard it here, guys. He's willing to come back on the show. That's right. Oh, did I say that out loud? <laughs> <laughs> no, <I'm kidding. laughs> but uh, until then I will see you in Philly, right? That's right. In We're going to be speaking That's in right. Philadelphia and what three weeks? Three weeks, yes. Oh my gosh, it's just like every it's uh, it's like Groundhog Day. Every time we go to a different city, it's like, oh, here we are again. Right, right. But it's great. Um, but thank you for coming on the show, and uh, yeah, I'll see you soon. All right, awesome, Beckett. Thanks. Thank you, Alan. All right. Thank you guys for watching, and we will see you next week. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Beckett Cook Show. Your support makes this content possible. All episodes of The Beckett Cook Show are also available on YouTube. For more information about Beckett and his ministry, visit his website at beckettcook.com. I'm Don Hawkins, and I once heard Chick-fil-A founder Truett Cathy say, you can tell if a person needs encouragement, check to see if they're breathing. I'd like to invite you to my weekly podcast, Encouragement for You, featuring encouraging guests like Dr. Greg and Aaron Smalley, Dan Cathy, the late Dr. Frank Menrith, Josh McDowell, and more. To subscribe to my weekly Encouragement for You podcast, go to lifeaudio.com. That's lifeaudio.com.